Hello, welcome back. Thanks for downloading episode 60 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today I'm speaking with Andy Staples. Up until a few years ago, Andy Staples' career might have been best described as running at a low simmer. More recently, it's fair to say, it's approaching a boiling point. The temperature began to rise when Staples was asked to redesign the old Meadowbrook Country Club near Detroit. There, to stunning effect, he resurrected, or reinvented really, the essence of Willie Park Jr. that had been lost through time by building bold, profound features in the greens and bunkers that take their inspiration from some of Park's major works found around London. That project led, in early 2019, to Staples being named the consulting architect for the 36 holes at Olympia Fields south of Chicago, including the North Course, site of two U.S. Opens and two PGA Championships, and also originally designed by Willie Park. Staples' association with these two important clubs has helped draw increased attention to his pioneering work in a concept that he calls Community Links, best exemplified by his redevelopment of the Rockwind course in Hobbs, New Mexico. Staples repurposed the existing course there as an all-ages social and recreational hub for the town that integrates walking paths, access for the disabled, a par-3 course, short hole loops, and other innovative features that bring citizens to golf and golf to the citizens. His prescient attention to community links has helped ignite a movement of other similar projects around the country that are trying to repair the fractured relationship between municipalities and golf. There was a time when cities looked at golf as an inclusive benefit. Through community links, Staples believes we can get there again. Andy started out in the course-building side of the business before transitioning into design, working with established architects like John Fote and Damien Pescuzo and Robert Graves. His work at Sand Hollow a sensational course he helped build with Fote in the red sands of southwest Utah in 2008, offered an early view of his creativity and construction skill. He's also a strong advocate for sustainability in golf and golf maintenance, and advises clubs on their consumption of water, electricity, and other inputs, with an eye toward minimizing or balancing their effects on both the environment and also their bottom line. A planner, a creative designer, a construction specialist, a historian, a great speaker, an efficiency expert, community links, Staples is the Swiss army knife of golf architecture. He can do it all, and you'll hear all about it in this dynamic discussion. And guess what? He's a freaking cool guy on top of everything else. And one more thing. He's just getting started. Here's Andy Staples. I'm curious to know, do you think there's such a thing as having a voice in golf design? You know, if you think of like painters, you could look at like Goya or Pissarro or something. I mean, you just know it's their work by their brushstrokes or in film, uh, a Quentin Tarantino has a very distinct style. It's his own voice or Wes Anderson they, or, or Ingmar Bergman. They just, you just kind of know it's their film, their fingerprints, their voice is all over. Is there an equivalent to that in, in your mind in golf design? Yeah, that's that's a pretty heavy question. So I think so. I think I wonder if anyone goes out and says, hey, I'm going to have this particular voice. You know, so much of our business evolves from the time you first get in the business to the time you, you know, are fortunate to work through it and maybe get out of it at some point in your life. But, you know, I would say yes. I think the the critical part is how much of golf design can be considered as new and innovative 
you know, there's certainly, and, and I think a lot of it, you look back on things and say, wow, that, that was actually pretty revolutionary. You know, there's a couple of things in our business you seem to always kind of go back to now, nowadays. Like what? Sand, well, Sandhill mm-hmm. seems to come back. Um, the work of Mike Strands continues to come back. The word minimalism. Uh, so, you know, in terms of, in terms of the, the brushstrokes, that, that's a hard one because, you know, there's so much of a copycat part of our business. It's funny how once one thing starts rolling, then a lot of other people start to follow along. And I think, you know, you start to see some of those things kind of evolve from natural lacy edge bunkers to now maybe you're seeing more square, square greens and flat sand bottoms and things like that. But no, I, I would say if there's one thing, one person that, that probably two people, one would be, first would be Pete Dye and what he was able to do at the time that he was able to do it. And then I think the, the closest second to him was probably Mike Strands and how he was able to, to really, you talk about paint, paintbrush strokes, you know, you see his, his strokes on his canvas very, very quickly. And so, yeah, I, w- I would say that there probably is. You mentioned that the, it's a copycat business, and I, I do agree. There does seem to be like it, it's like a, a a flock of birds flying. If if the leader fl- you know turns one way, they all kind of instinctively follow it. I guess that would sort of indicate that not enough people have a quote unquote voice in architecture. If if there if if, if there's a temptation to mimic what's successful and everybody else, you know, follows that, then that means that they, they don't really have that internal, that, that strength. So maybe it's, it's really yeah. lacking. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think there, well, there's two parts of it. In my experience, it's, it's hard to get an owner to let you go and, and do some things that you might be, you know, ultimately considered as new and innovative. So I think having the trust of an owner is first and foremost. And, and, and just speaking from my own experience, again, it's it's rare that you get a club to just say, go, go and find find what this site needs. And I think when it comes down to doing some things that, you know, an owner maybe hired you for or maybe had seen someplace or maybe someplace around the corner, you know, the easy the easy out is just to do what's been successful and and try to do some of the same things, maybe put your own little twist on it. You know, I've always said one of the big reasons why we got into this this world of mounds and heavy shaped golf courses through the 80s and 90s is it was it was everybody's interpretation of doing what Pete Dye was doing, but a little more maintainable or a little more maintenance friendly. And so next thing you know, you got these very repetitive mounds and and heavily shaped golf courses. Uh, and I don't I don't think that would have been nearly as popular or are so available in all the courses if, if pete if pete hadn't hadn't done that first it's interesting they and i agree that that he's whatever he was doing inspired a lot of uh imitation but they <laughs> it so often lacked the the very element that made his made it so distinctive in the first place which was sort of like this uncompromising abrupt verticality in the shaping and then by i think yeah by the time you get into the like the late 80s and and mid 90s you have the quote-unquote containment mounding that's sort of these yeah rounded soft bubbling kind of things that are just kind of framing the holes in the greens which doesn't look anything ultimately like what pete Dye was doing it doesn't have anywhere near the the intensity 
Right. And the, well, the guys that I know that, that worked, that, that actually shaped for, for P were doing things with pieces of equipment that no one was doing at that time. You were, you were trying to make shapes that a, a, a piece of equipment had a hard time doing. And, and when it came to, you know, the, the, the business of repeating and, and producing, then bulldozers became very easy to do a lot of those things because, you know, they're able to go up and down on a very repetitive basis. And I think that's why you start to see a lot of those mounds uh, and that, that shaping start to be a, a lot, uh, you know, pretty prevalent. And I, and I would say, too, that's one of the things that, back to the brushstrokes conversation, I think that's one of the things I really focus a lot on is how do you actually make shapes that, that a piece of equipment would have a hard time making. And that's that's a hard thing to do because just about every piece of equipment in the construction world was was made to, to make things flat, you know, to, mm-hmm. to build roads and pads and things like that. So I think Pete really really put that out in the forefront, said, hey, this is how we're going to do things. And we're we're going to push a piece of equipment to do things it's not meant to do. You just brought up something that, that I think is pertinent to this conversation. And it's when you're thinking about contemporary architects and and who has a strong voice and if the, if it can come through on one hand you have people who we acknowledge, acknowledge as you know the the masters of their craft at the top of the field you know Tom and and Bill Coor and Gil Hans and David Kidd and and so forth uh, some other people and often they're getting these sites that it would be criminal if they were stamping their own vision and voice on it like too heavily you know they're when you have a great property you know i think your job as an architect most people would would believe that you know you need to pull back and let the land dictate the form so you really not don't have an opportunity to go in and put your little telltale telltale signs on it which is why Pete, Pete was so effective because he usually had really crappy properties or you know blank slates that needed to be pumped up uh, and then the on the other hand there just isn't the opportunity to do construction projects, you know, that most everything is in, is in renovation or, um, you know, you're gonna, going in and trying to be historically sensitive to what existed. So, again, there's not a lot of opportunity to impart a voice. Uh, but, but in this conversation, one thing that, that strikes me is, is like, Reese Jones gets a lot of, you know, he's, he's nobody's favorite inside the small, you know, nerdy world of architecture. But, but he, he had kind of had a voice and a, and a vision. I mean, you could say it's repetitive, but his style of bunkering and mounding and, and the way he sets up greens in relation to the levels and the, the depth of bunkers and things, it's it, it's it's pretty clear vision of how he sees golf. I find that kind of interesting that of all the people that you would, you know, you, you might think that there wasn't anything like intellectual there, but on some level there is because it's it's his own style. Yeah, and especially if you apply his, his input and, and imprint on championship golf, uh, no mm. question about it. I think, you know, there's there there's definitely style when you go you go across the the country and follow Reese's work and I and I really like Reese. He's always always been real. Yeah, he's um, a great guy, great guy. Positive. Yeah, really good guy. And and I you know, but the thing about it is he's got he's got a group of guys that go around the world building golf courses and you know and that 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 world started by replication and hiring a brand and making sure that the, when the when the owner hired Reese Jones, they got the same thing that they they thought they were getting, and you know, and I think that that goes back to some of the historical uh, kind of nature of our business and how we kind of started in the the architecture world or landscape architecture world and maybe civil engineering, where we drew plans and things like that. But you know, I think that's they hire a brand and they expect a brand, and and the owners know full well what they're getting, and 
you know, they that I think there's a certain level of, of upholding that brand. And I think Reese is no different than in a lot of cases what the, the popular guys are doing today. When they get hired, they get hired for that that style of course. And there's a pressure to produce and they, they need to produce what what they think their owners are, are buying. So it's really easy to think of it in terms of replication and doing the same things over and over yeah, again. Right. And, and expectations. And I wonder if I wonder if somebody like that or, or the Nicholas company the Norman company, you know, back in the day, they were getting hired, like, as you just said, to, because the owners wanted that product. I wonder if they ever felt, you know, trapped inside that, that, that dynamic of having to, you know, of not having the ability to, to really punch outside the, the walls that they'd created. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard one. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know what's in their, their minds, especially you'd, you'd compare Reese to, to Jack Nicholas and things, but I, I would, I would like to believe that they're, you know, our business is, is an interesting dynamic of creativity and fresh new ideas with a certain level of insecurity and, and feeling like, Hey, you know, we want to be good at what we do. And when someone tells you every single year that you're really good at what you do, you start to believe it. You see it on the magazines. You see all the, the articles written, and you start to say, "My gosh, this this actually is really good. Look at what's happening. My my owners are successful. I'm I'm winning these awards. I'm continuing. The phone's ringing off the hook. So by gosh, why would I why would I ever think about changing it? Because it certainly seems to be working so far. And so you start to believe that. And I think that's probably one of the the slipperiest slopes that I've experienced uh, looking around my my industry is is balancing this idea of drinking your own Kool-Aid and, you know, thinking that you're pretty, you're pretty good because you did something that ended up being pretty good. And, you know, this, this balance of stardom and, and the, the chasing that stardom versus just being creative and doing what you love. It's, it's a, it's an interesting part of our business. Yeah, it's, it's that age old story of, of success corrupting artistry or, you know, great, great art, being commercialized to the point where it prevents more great art from that artist being created. They become a, like a pantomime of themselves. Uh, it even happens in architecture, <laughs> golf architecture. Well, let, let me ask you this. Uh, in your own mind, have you had a chance yet to fully explore or express your own voice? So I, that that's another big heavy question. I, you know, I like to believe that every project is an ability to try to impress on uh, an owner, what I think to be important. And, you know, I think, you know, I let other people kind of look back on what, what I've been able to do and make a, make a, uh, you know, a decision on that. But, you know, I've always felt the first thing that I thought would keep me in the business for a long time is, is knowing how a golf course, uh, could be built and maintained so that my owners could be successful. And, and we use the word sustainability a lot today, but that, that was where I felt I could make a, a, a big impression because there were, there was not many people in, in my world, in my side of the business that was paying attention to that. You know, it, they weren't the ones going on mowers. They weren't the ones uh, worrying about the, the, the sand sliding off the faces, the bunkers, those types of things. And, and so when I, when I ventured out on my own, I said, you know, this is at least a, a part of the world that world of golf, that golf design didn't understand very well. And I could be better at that. So I'd like to believe that there's a certain kind of behind the scenes part of what I do that that has kind of moved the needle a little bit because I'll, I'll I know for a fact when I was asking these questions about 
you know, irrigation design and, and sprinkler head layout and the amount of water that co- courses were using, uh, we didn't we didn't know enough about it to be able to say yes or no or if we're doing it well or doing it or not. You know, the uh, the the rainbirds and toros of the world were were on top of that, but you know they're motivated to sell systems and sell equipment. Right. And so I'd like to believe that that's one area that I've had a, a I think of that I'm confident I've had a pretty strong voice in. So you know, but you know I don't get hired. <laughs> Owners don't hire me to to make the most efficient golf course. They make they hire me to. To, to create great golf courses that people want to play and they can they can be successful at. So um, I think the creative part of what I do is is starting to come to the forefront. Uh, you know, I've always sold that that sustainability. When you hire me, sustainability is in the background. It's running. It's what you get. It's it's a value add. But but listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna be as creative as anybody that you're talking to, and and here's why, and this is how I'm gonna do it. So uh, I'm hoping that the creativity part of what I do starts to come to the forefront in the next next couple of years we'll definitely be back to talk about uh sustainability that's a big part of this conversation but you just touched on this um you over the last couple of years have have be your profile has become increasingly uh high you know you've, you've kind of come up and, and a lot more people know who you are now and you're getting some good projects and i mean it feels like things are you know from the outside looking in it feels like like things are getting better for you i'm i'm wondering just from your perspective though what what do you think it takes to to crack into that you know if we want to call them the big four i know that's very generic but let's just say there's there's some sort of pyramidal scheme and architecture and certain people are getting like these you know they're at the top and they're they're getting some of the projects and there are so so few really 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 great projects around what what do you think it takes to to get there other than just doing you know good work i know opportunity but what creates opportunity man i don't know the answer to that question i i all i can tell you is that it's a hard business no matter what side you're in even even when you kind of get to the level of having some stability, it still is hard because you you have a whole series of different uh, different requirements on your time. But you know, I think the golf business is still. You know, we always try to think of it as a pie. Like, like there's only a certain number of pieces, and they only go out to a, a certain number of guys. And and it's it's kind of like the economy, right? We don't think of it as economy as as there's only so much to go around. We think that this is uh, you, you create your value and you create uh, the desire, the demand for what you do, and 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 so I, it's it's hard work. I, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the the end of the end of the day for me is I, I always woke up in the morning and knew that somebody was probably out there working harder than me and up there, you know, making calls or visiting golf courses, and and that drive just just I knew that that there was that there I, I i couldn't just be sitting around and, and and waiting for the phone to call like it used to back in the day but and so i i don't know what the recipe is i do know that that the one common theme amongst all of us that are starting to kind of get our feet underneath us is it's hard work and it's 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 a seven day seven day a week job to 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 balance the ability to sell the ability to design and be able to create and then more importantly be able to to get out there and, and learn and, and stay fresh. And so, um, you know, I, I've looked around though. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of themes have, have emerged. It's one of the things I've been able to do is just kind of keep track of, you know, subconsciously as to what people are doing and jobs, you know, why, why people are being successful and things. And I, 
you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I think it's almost by the grace of God that anybody uh, is going to be a golf architect because I don't think I'm working any harder or any smarter than anybody else. I just think that it's, uh, you know, it's a it's the whole adage of the harder you practice, the luckier you get. And I think, um, you know, maybe the pyramidal scheme is out there. I don't I've not seen it because I still think that we can create our own value. And that's what I've always tried to do. I mean, I always try to figure out how to how to become uh, a little bit of a different twist of what everyone else is is selling and 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 hopefully uh, an owner will start to pay attention but um i don't know i'm kind of talking in circles now but i think uh i like to believe it's hard work no matter what right and you do, you do create your own value that but i'm i'm curious also there's also a an element or a an equation so to speak about how you broadcast yourself or how how you're able to broadcast your business and you are out there and you you're meeting with new clients and you're traveling and, and you're kind of what I'll in what I call the real world and so many people that I interact with are in this architectural bubble you know our interactions are, are through social media or Twitter or on golfclubatlas.com what's do you do you notice uh, any kind of equivalency between what's popular or talked about or favorable on in the digital world, I guess, versus the perception of the people that you that you meet when you're being considered for a job. Do the people that you talk to have any awareness of what's going on? You know, in the in the hip section of of golf course architecture. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that, that that's changed the last couple of, of years. I've I've certainly noticed and been told specifically that people are paying attention to the to the online environment where they'll go on your Twitter and, and see what kind of things you're posting and if if you happen to happen to, to, to get on Golf Club Atlas there might be some articles written and I'll be honest, you know, one of the one of the reasons why I, I was originally mentioned at Olympia Fields was a result of the interview I did on Golf Club Atlas. They read they read through some of the work that I had been doing. I had just gotten done with a renovation at Meadowbrook, which was a Willie Park Jr. original design, and then I was working up in Milwaukee on a Tom Bendelow design, and it just so happened that Olympia Fields two golf courses were designed by Willie Park Jr. and Tom Bendelow. Mm-hmm. And so the next thing you know, they would never have known that had they not read read the uh the article or article or the interview would never have, not have been on golf club atlas so i i'd say it's certainly changing and and i think as long as you're doing a, you know a halfway decent job of putting your your reputation or brand out there people will go find it they just have to go look for it but i will say this though the you know i look at when i first started out on my own i i was i was talking at all the golf industry show events i was applying for uh, you know, seminars that I could speak, uh, that I could teach. I, I went to parks and rec, state parks and rec meetings and things. And, and at the end of the day, you know, it, it was hard because you're not sure if this is all paying off because what you want is you want them to, you know, leave the, leave the seminar and say, Andy, here's my card, call me tomorrow. And, it, and none of that ever happened. But what it did do is it slowly built a brand. And I would say it probably took me 10 years and I'm in my 15th year of my own business. And it was that 10, 10 to 12 years where it actually felt like something was was happening. And now with social media, that that whole story gets broadcast much quicker, mm-hmm. almost in real time. 
you mentioned this, uh, you referenced this uh, um, a little while ago, but you started, I don't want, I don't know if you actually started off, but, but before you opened your own business, you worked for Wadsworth Construction. How did that experience being, working for a large contractor shape and influence the way that you design golf courses now? Yeah. Uh, well, so Wadsworth was the first entry into my, in, into the industry. And then since at, once I worked at Wadsworth, I got through the ranks at a couple of apprenticeships and things. But no, I had a, a, a mentor, if you call him, when I was in college. He ended up hiring me right out of college. And I asked him, I said, what, what, do you, what would you do if, I were, if you were me trying to get in the business? And he said, go build golf courses. Go find somebody to work for to build golf courses to understand you know, what, it, what it takes from, from you know, the ground up. And you see a, see a plan or see a vision and see it all the way through. And so I said, all right, that's what I'm going to do. And just so happened that Wadsworth was building a, a course in my home state of Wisconsin up in Green Bay. And interviewed with them out of chicago and they hired me to put put me on my first job and so i'd say what the the single largest thing that 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 experience i I, as i look back and remember what i went through because i was it was like drinking out of a fire hose because i was involved with everything it was just how complicated and how many aspects of the business there are to make a golf course and then you know making the golf course is one is really the easier part of making it good is another thing and just realizing the behind the scenes of how many things can go wrong or not go as well as planned and so I'd, I'd say that that's probably the layers of of golf architecture that start through the design and in through the construction and grow in and ultimately the maintenance all those layers that was the first thing that i saw it was like really really phenomenal to know um, that 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 world existed, and that there was actually a a, a chance for a, a long term business. Whether I was a designer or a builder, I knew I could always fall back on going back to building because, you know, I, I was good at it. I felt like I, I understood it, and so. Um, but yeah, it was it was a it was immensely helpful to understanding how to get in the business. Jeff Brower and I were just talking about this. He said that. And he, he, it was under the pretense, kind of that, like it, he, you know, he he didn't really like it. It kind of bothered him that everything in the or the golf course construction was was veering toward more toward the design build method. And and he came up with the you know design. You know, you design the course and then you contracted it out. You bid it out to contractors, and that's the world that he came up in. And he sees this movement toward design build. And I notice just from my you know sort of observing i'm not in the business but from my perspective that there's definitely a romanticism attached to this idea of uh, designing golf courses in the field with no plans is that helpful at all that that the public is a lot or at least a section of the public is sort of being guided down this road where, where they think that you know if you draft plans and, and hire a contractor to build a golf course that you might get something that's less creative or or you know it's, it's not as authentic as this team of group of guys out in their bulldozers and drawing pictures in in the sand about what they're going to build is is that i don't know if that's a good thing or if it's if it doesn't matter at all you came from you know you're you're more of a kind of you just talked about your construction and um abilities and i think you're more you know understanding of the engineering behind it so where do you fall on that line is this a healthy trend well i kind of chuckle 
when I hear the word design build these days because, you know, it's it just like anything. You, you want to boil it down to something that someone can digest within a very short period of time. And, you know, and I'm being asked more and more about this idea of design build. I see a lot of proposals come out and say, hey, we're interested in de design build. Uh, I think overall it's drawn an attention to the, the, the creative aspect that's always been the case. Uh, the, the, in order to get what you want in the field, you have to have somebody who understands the vision and can adequately represent that through a piece of equipment. And some guys get on the dozer and do it themselves, and other guys will do their best to dr draw plans or draw sketches and, and communicate it back to somebody else. I like to believe I'm a bit of a hybrid of the two. I think overall it's healthy. I, what I t completely understand where Jeff is coming from because, you know, there's a certain romanticism to the design build as if none, none of the plans or none of the traditional aspects of golf architecture exist anymore, and it's an either-or when, in fact, it's really just a hybrid. I still have yet to find a, a project that gets approved without some form of a grading plan whether it's a detailed contour by contour line plan or if it's more uh, conceptual in nature, you know, the, uh, the permitting agencies need a base map to understand where the golf course is being planned, where it's not being planned. And there's a whole series of documents that go together to communicate what this is going to be. And so therefore, I mean, what I, what I try to articulate it as is, is, you can bid out all of the technical and engineering aspects of the course. You can bid out the the purchasing of the gravels and the sands and the pipe. You can you can bid out the the installation of that pipe. Even you bid out the the, the design and irrigation uh, installation. Carpaz is another one. Uh, the, uh, tree removal. You can go to five, four, three, four, five contractors to get the best price to take a tree out. Uh, but I try not to bid and and make that a low bid situation about the creative aspects, the creative portion of our of our uh, of our jobs. And so let that flow the way it needs to flow and let me drive who is going to be a part of of that. And so so it's design build, but yet there's still a lot of bidding that goes on and there's a lot of plans that are drawn. So I think I think overall to answer your question, I think it's probably I I believe it's a positive thing, but I kind of still chuckle because you can't just say design build without understanding exactly what that means and how it's all going to go forward. I I think there's even a, a misconception of how golf courses were built. You know, in the 1920s, there were there were contracting companies that just they didn't design their courses, but you would hire them to build a, a, a golf course for you. I mean, they had there's a, a company called maddox construction out of chicago and they built you know dozens if not hundreds of golf courses throughout the midwest and, and maybe beyond and they would have like teams of horses like they, they would stable like dozens and dozens of horses that they would rotate in and out of their jobs and so even back then these great architects who we revere were using contracted companies to build their golf courses and and they had detailed plans too, like you know bill langford's name keeps coming up you know across my line of vision lately and i was reading a little bit about him and i was sort of under the impression that you know they just went out with their big steam shovels and would just start gouging away and that's maybe why langford and moreau courses had this kind of crude abrupt 
Rainer-esque style to them is because they, you know, they were just sort of like tearing Earth apart and then just leaving it, and it had this really cool look. But I was reading that they were very scientific and uh, meticulous about their approach, and they would balance their cut and fills, and everything was calculated uh, mathematically. And I was I was surprised to hear that. I you know just didn't assume that there was this level of contracting and then engineering behind some of the the you know the golden age architecture texture that we revere you know i think the impression is these guys were just out there with horses and kind of creating their own version of the design build but that was not always the case well right and i I, and i would say that part of the reason why we got to where we are today is because the evolution of what we were taught back then and there's no doubt langford moreau were i mean he was he was astute on how he managed cuts and fills on his property what's what's even more incredible is able to do it in that style and and it's one of my favorite styles. It's one of the things I just go back around and look at some of the green complexes, just understand how in the world he even envisioned some of that some of that work. And yeah, I I, I agree a hundred percent that I think there's a certain part of what we do that needs to have some level of planning. And you know we you know one of the things that we say about design build, one of the things I kind of chuckle about today too is you know we we. We think about the 80s and 90s about this, these big design factories with these big offices and a, a team of, of designers sitting on, on drafting tables under lights and working all hours of the morning. Uh, and, and now with this design build kind of mentality that that's all gone and now it's more boutique-y and, and structured. Well, the, that, that apprenticeship is still alive and well. It just so happens a lot of these young apprentices are going out and getting on a piece of equipment and doing some of that drawing that they used to do or those that envisioning that the create creative aspects that they used to do on a table now are actually being re- represented through a piece of equipment and i think that to me that creative aspect is is what's been healthy about what we're doing now there's there's other byproducts of that that you know that we can get into but i'd say that uh, i'd say that drawing plans and understanding how to manage a piece of property is is as old as as any type of development around the around the world and and understanding and planning you know, the training that people went through to do that uh, there is still really only a few places to to go to learn how to manage property i'm not just from golf courses i'm talking about land developments and things and there's a certain aspect that you have to drop lands and learn how to do it there's no question in my mind that they were thinking about that and on top of the fact you know i just think about a guy like willie park jr you know he he, he was here doing over a short very short period of time you know, there's a lot of other architects you can make this assessment too that he couldn't have been at, at every one of his golf courses as often as as we'd like to believe because it just wasn't feasible. So he had to leave enough information or at least enough knowledge through a contractor or a, a person, a representative, uh, to make it happen. So there's no doubt in my mind that that's been going on for as long as we've known, uh, as long as golf architecture has existed. Mm-hmm. Well, now, since we're talking about Willie Park a little bit, and um, now is a good time to jump into Olympia Fields. You're now the consulting architect uh, for their 36 holes. This is a private club for anyone who's not familiar, a very famous historic private club uh, south of Chicago. I was just there last last month, and it's a beautiful property. And you know, you kind of walk around and you think, "What this? There's nothing you know that needs to be done here. It's in pretty good shape." How has your relationship with the club? Uh, been and, and what are the talks about and, and what do you have in store for them? 
So the one, so yeah, it's 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 by far the 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 largest get in my in my career so far, and I'm honored to be working there. So to be able to to know I've been voted in as the consulting architect there is 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 incredible incredible honor. So the one the one thing that they're not in is a huge hurry. So I've I've spent the last you know better part of the last year just getting to know their history and getting to know their golf course and. And so really, in a lot of respects, it's about, you know, harvesting and making their golf, their membership use their golf course more. So we're talking very specific uh, infrastructure needs like drainage and and new technologies. Some of their bunkers are really having some problems. Uh, they get flooded out and silted over, so now they're not draining as well. Uh, some turf, uh, some turf discussions, new turf discussions, uh, some tree discussion as well so really it's it, we're focused on the south course first which is the tom bendelo course the north course is going to be hosting the bmw fedex championship next august so there the north course really hasn't been discussed other than what kind of modifications if any need to be made for the tournament next year so uh, really i've been focused my mo- most of my energy on the south and then you know, one thing that it has revealed, though, is they used to have two other golf courses. They used to have four courses, and it's really we found some really interesting, cool, old photography that is is very relevant for the South. And that when they went through their past renovations, we, I think that they just there was there's a lot of really cool shapes and things that over the time over years have been kind of kind of snuffed out a little bit. And so we're looking at maybe bringing back some of that, some of that look. Not not necessarily just because it's old, but I think it's just better. And so, uh, yeah. So we're we're hoping to have the South Course plan uh, to in front of the members uh, next year sometime, and then we'll host the tournament in August, and then uh, just depend on how the tournament goes and what the what the membership thinks about the plan for the south as to whether or not we'll get into the north but the idea would be at some point we really dive deep into the historic uh, part of the north course because there's some really interesting stuff about willie park and what we now know of uh, what he was doing back then and and the things that i've found through other research i've done of his and so we're really going to take time and just just go through one course at a time and and hopefully by 21 or so we're building something uh, but we're not in a huge rush, and it's just been it's just been good knowing that we're taking our time getting to know a golf course, and not necessarily just jumping right in and making decisions based on limited information. So the the history of that place has just has just been incredible to to understand. Yeah. I I know you can't comment much further than than you just did because you don't know. But do you sense that the club might be potentially interested in redeveloping more of a, a Willie Park? look because because right now the north course it, it seems like it's just it's really optimized for tournament golf you, you know there it's a beautiful property but you know it's it's very much what you would think of a of a classic tournament midwestern course with you know they can grow the rough up the way the uh the the width of the fairways the greens are you know tilted really fast and tilted but there's not a lot of what you would call you know golden age shaping in the golf course as it is right now so i mean are does a go- a club like that do they have to do you think that it's really a choice between being that style of tournament golf course that they've been for the last you know few decades at least uh, or being more of kind of like this bespoke historic really interesting charismatic 
older golf course. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think I know what you're asking. I think yeah, we're going to try to do both. I, of course. The, <laughs> the, 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 the history on the tournament history, I mean, it goes back to uh, 1928 uh, U.S. Open, and 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 so that that's an important part of of, of their history, mm -hmm. and and really quite honestly, their their business model. So that we don't want that to go away. I don't know that we'll ever, you know, go, go after a U.S. Open. I don't. That's not that's not the club's decisions. That that that's the the, the USGA's or some, somebody else. But but in terms of of hosting tournaments, they still have interest in that. Now, does that mean that we can't figure out how to make the North Course? look a lot more like Willie Park maybe have done it or would have done it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of it. There's a lot of interest to do that. And I would say that, you know, to me, uh, all the greens there are pretty much original. They, they've been chewed into a little bit. The bunkers have been pulled closer to the greens in the 50s. The old superintendent at the time uh, in preparation for the PGA Championship brought the, the bunkers really close to the greens, which then he went into some of the you know what what were larger bigger expansive greens are now tightened up by bunkers so there's a certain restorative uh, aspect that that could happen and then there's there's way more appreciation for hazards that aren't necessarily sand bunkers so the the fescue mounds and humps and bumps and the the willie park pits and pots that mm -hmm. that you see across the england there's a there's a huge amount of interest to do that. Cool. And tilting fairways and wider fairways, getting fairways running out, uh, that that to me is going to be a pretty interesting uh, design uh, challenge there because it's uh, there's a lot there to be done uh, to bring it back to that, and and I think there's going to be some interest to do that. That sounds awesome. So is it a kind of a case where you know they obviously the North Course has has the tournament history and, and that's very important, and not that the South Course isn't historic as well. It is. Uh, but there's been more of a, it's been toyed with a little bit more over the years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I saw a, I think it was on your Twitter feed, and you retweeted it or commented on a picture of a of an, a bunker at Olympia Fields, but it was from a one of the courses that no longer exists, but it was one of the courses built by Willie Watson. But this vision of this bunker was, was really cool and extreme. Is that something that yep. you might want to try to incorporate into the South Course? Yep, yeah, we, well, we're... Yes, the answer to that is yes. So, so the, the history is that Tom Benlow came to do the first course, partnered with Will, uh, William Watson to do course uh, two, and then uh, then William Watson did course three, and then Park came in and did course four, but then also consulted on all the other courses. So much much of the the kind of the peeling back of the history is to understand, try to understand who did what. And I think Willie, Willie Park did a lot more on, on all three core or on all four courses than, than really what is just simply say it's William Watson or, or Tom Bendelow. But so some of that bunkering I think is as a result from uh, Willie Park's uh, involvement. And so, yes, we're, that's some of the most uh, exciting part of what I think in the North of uh, the side of the South course is going to be is to bring some of that, that lineage back in and and because those the the first course and the other two courses that no longer exist were kind of a hodgepodge between all three uh, architects that gives me some freedom to do something pretty creative on the south so we've got some ideas that have been thrown out uh, but i will say and, and the property on the south is as every bit of as interesting as the north course 
uh, a little bit more penal. There's a Butterfield Creek that comes through town or comes through the course, and and it uh, it crosses the holes, I think, eleven times. So there's a little bit of a penal nature, and so they've always wanted the South Course to try to be as friendly as possible and not be overbearing about bunkers and things like that. So, uh, but my hope is to bring some of that flair from all three courses to the South. During the last time the South Course was renovated, I don't know what it was, maybe 12, 15 years ago, um, I th- didn't Steve Smyers kind of do something similar, like really bring, try to bring in that old, rougher, not rough, but, you know, uh, more abrupt shaping to kind of recapture that, that essence of, you know, something that might have been built by hand? I don't know what it looked like before he got there, but that was my my understanding is is that was sort of something that, that, that he he gave that look to the, re-gave that look to the South Course when, when he did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Steve, Steve and his his associate Patrick uh, uh, were out there. Uh, I think it was 15 years ago, and um, you know that's that's kind of debatable as far as where you know what his charge was and and how you know what kind of influences he used. I do know that there was some some discussion around doing what Tom Bendelo would have done and those types of things. But if you look at the old photographs and some of the photographs that I've seen, I think that some of the stuff just is way more interesting. So, mm-hmm. um, but there's there's some infrastructure things even back then. You know, the the bunkers weren't weren't built in a manner that that were going to last much longer than what they are now. And so, you know, we're in a we're in a position of really focusing almost entirely on some infrastructure on drainage and replacing the drainage of the bunkers and things. And so the next thing you know is like, okay, well let's let's look at this comprehensively and say, all right, well. What did Steve do that we like, and what what kind of things do we think that we can do that makes it better and more interesting? And you know, bigger, wider fairways I think are still part of the discussion. The what's now the sixth hole, which were um, was originally the eighth hole, was was a volcano style hole. And when you look at the old photographs and and the void, the, the fact that there was no trees around the backside of the green and 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 bunker bunker strategy was a way more simple. And I mean, to me, the, that hole needs to be one of the best volcano holes out there. It should be, you know, right there in conversation with Franklin Hills and Donald mm-hmm. Ross's volcano. And so, you know, I just we're just uh, I don't think the South Course is going to be a dramatic renovation. Uh, it won't be a complete redo. It won't the greens will probably all stay in, in place. Those are all original, with the exception of the eighth hole and the third hole. Uh, so, sixteen of the greens are original. So, uh, but yeah, I think. It's a it's the age old question like okay what you know what exactly about the old old golf course is better than what we have today and I think there's a few things that we can do. That's exciting to be able to just be, to be on on a on a property with that much history. I mean I it's I always wonder like if if I were an architect or projecting out to somebody else I, I always think it's it's a hard thing I would think it would be a hard thing to to do uh, renovations and restorations. I would just assume that you'd want to to be able to create your own shapes. And yet when you, when you're doing uh, like a historic restoration, you really just, I mean, I I would assume that you're trying to rebuild, recapture what was there. So it's, there's the creativity element of it. It may not be great, but when you get a chance to do what you did, like at Meadowbrook, which is kind of like reinterpret, you weren't trying to restore it necessarily. You're, you're really uh, channeling a vision and maybe what you can kind of play around with and tinker with on the South Course, I, that does seem like it, it would be a, a, a tremendous outlet for your creativity. Yeah, and I, I almost think that's 
it, it becomes a little bit more of a challenge because now you're trying to balance you know this idea of you know what would what would Willie have done or what would Tom have done versus what we're going to do and I think to me that when you mentioned Meadowbrook what what I'm what I'm most proud about at Meadowbrook was the fact that that club did their did their research we we traveled overseas to see a lot of the original Willie Park Junior golf courses and saw some of the flair and the 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 kind of identity of these courses that just was void you know not just in in at Meadowbrook or Detroit but void of of, of just about any Willie Park Jr. course in the U.S. And they gave me the freedom to bring that. So it really wasn't a new idea. You know, it's funny. I, I tell this story quite a bit. The third hole at Meadowbrook is a is a, a adaptation, kind of inspiration from uh, the Hunter Combe fourth green mm-hmm. of, of parks. And when we first started shaping that, uh, the members would come out and see what we were doing. And they're just like, Andy, what in the world are you doing? And what is this green down here, this lower level? And, you know, the words Mickey Mouse were turned, you know, were thrown around quite a bit. And so then I said, you know, I pulled over the club president. I pulled over the general manager, pulled over the superintendent and said, guys, is this pretty close to what we saw at Huntercombe in England? And they said, this is identical. And just like that, the person that was giving us a hard time would say, oh, wow, that's that's pretty cool. I like that. And so, so now it gave us, it's not like we did anything newer, you know, this, you, I guess the, the shapes and all that aren't new. It's just the, how do you apply the shapes to the ground? And I think that's the delicate balance of trying to, to, to create and do it in a way that, that makes golfing sense and looks old. And I think that's what, that's what I'm most proud of is that it, that it worked at Meadowbrook. And I think we have a lot of that same kind of feeling that we can do at Olympia Fields. When we were talking about the idea of, of an architect having a voice, you mentioned that you wanted uh, sustainability in design to be one. You, you looked around and you didn't see that being a point of emphasis, and you thought that was something that you cared passionately about and you could also bring into your business that would make you uh, unique and a, and a desirable person to work with. Another element of that is you're very involved in uh, this idea of community golf, which uh, I, I'm I'm pleased to say that I think there's a lot of heat around the idea of community golf now. I'm not exactly sure what that means or, or what it looks like, but at least people are, are talking about it. I'll ask you, on this idea of uh, making golf more accessible to communities and pulling the community into the golf course, where are we right now in 2019 on that journey? Have we made any progress large scale? Absolutely, we have. There's been huge progress, and we you know, my business is driven by examples. You know, it's one thing you know, we talk about, you know, earlier in this, this, this talk, we talked about, okay, well, at what point did you get to, uh, to be able to be established in the business or whatnot? And I, you know, it's one thing to go in front of a group of people and say, this is what we should do. This is what I believe. This is how I want to do it and not have the experience or the or the example to show them and and we finally now have the examples you say see what they did at winter park see what they did in the city of hobbs you know see see what they're trying to do at sharp park uh see what they're trying to do at washington dc and those are those are critical to our quest to show communities that they that that it can happen because it, it, 
just as much as we have all of these, you know, these great examples, we have equal uh, at an all-time high of of equal negativity and attack to golf. And so, uh, never more has it been more uh, has it been this important to to have these experiences. So I I believe we've been, you know, collectively as an industry working hard and i think the fruits are, are paying off I, I believe that wholeheartedly it seems maybe on a case-by-case basis you it, it seems that you know you can find successes but when, when you think about the like the big picture and and all the golf courses all the public golf courses around the country and this overwhelming that feeling that you just referenced of, of negativity and even hostility toward golf it, it seems like an overwhelming task to try to have a conversation with people and to sell them on the merits of golf is and then you you know you combine it with just the all the environmental crises we see right now the forest fires in in california you know and it just seems like golf could be is becoming such a or it has become already such an insignificant part of of people's thought processes and it's harder and harder to justify using space uh, for for golf for entertainment how do, how do we continue to talk on a rational level and and, and sell golf to the people the, the city councils and the municipalities that that we need to sell it to, to to you know keep some of these golf courses open right well that's what i try significant uh, I, I try to use significant amounts of my time to to help yeah. make that case and make that story and i would tell you that there's there there's there's two things the one thing that the industry if you will the golf industry has done an incredibly poor job and i think we've all talked about this is this this lack of of, of pr around the value of the game i think it's just we just haven't we haven't done a great job of that and i think Somebody needs to step up and do something about it. And so that's one thing. So I, there, I'm hard-pressed to, to know in a city of all shapes and sizes uh, that when they know that a portion of their community plays golf, and right now a portion of every community plays golf, uh, that is, a, that is a, a stakeholder group in their city that, that municipalities have to take note of. It's not as if they can just say, sorry, we don't think you should play golf go join the private club or go over they still have a uh, i think they have an innate understanding they own a golf course they have an innate understanding that they need uh to 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 know that that golf course isn't going to go away i know there's a lot of conversations about those that are having those 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 questions are being asked but i think they still have a hard time knowing that that uh that they would ultimately close a course so then secondly uh you know every major component of of municipal golf that i've been a part of successful has been done outside of just pure cities and and by that i mean funding that i mean volunteer work that i mean just quarterbacking and now's a time where i think the golf industry is going to need to come to the table with with uh, cash and be able to say that there's going to be some sort of a foundation that is going to look out for the health of these facilities. Uh, and there's, uh, there's, there's, I think there's burning uh, desire and building demand to do that. And I think, um, yeah, I want to be a part of that. That's my vision is at some point. Now, it's not going to subsidize all courses. What it's going to do is when I go in front of a city council, and I'm about ready to do that uh, this week, 
And I want to stand up in front of uh, the council and the Parks and Rec and say, the golf industry is behind you. And here are the, the, the pieces that are behind you. Here, here's the USGA. Here's the PGA of America. And oh, by the way, here's, here's a fund that's going to help offset your costs. Now, we're not going to relieve you of your responsibility. You still have a responsibility to, to, to keep this course open and invest in it. Uh, and 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 maybe even hand it over to a group that can take it from there. But um, you know you've got to show your commitment to seeing this thing become successful. And then oh by the way, this is our plan to do that. And I think um, we're now in as good of a position to do that as we ever have been. Are is the USGA and the PGA of America are they willing to get involved and in, and in fundraise or or contribute financial support to cause like this? So uh, that's hard. I, I would say if you got them in the corner, they'd say yes. Now, what that translates to is yet to be determined. And I'm, I'm having conversations with some really good good folks about this exact conversation. And, and I like to believe that, yes, they are. But I also think that they're, you know, the, the word that I've been hearing a lot l- lately, you know, we talk about the golf industry of, of who plays golf. And there's there's a definite divide between the kind of the, 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 the super senior group, the 65 and older, the baby, baby boomers, if you will, and then the younger families, the young execs. I mean, that, that divide is, is there. But the boomers are saying the word legacy and showing and leaving a legacy uh, more so than I've, I've heard. And they all love golf, and we all know what golf has done for us in our lives, and I think there's the opportunity to harness some of that through a variety of different means. I'm not entirely sure, but that's a long way of saying that I think with the right plan in place, uh, with the right knowledge, I've got a I've got an office uh, in my or I've got a room in my office here that has one wall devoted to the contacts of all city and municipally owned golf courses. I don't think anybody's had a, a more in-depth conversation with these, uh, with the parks and rec directors and city managers and golf golf operators uh, than I have, and so the, the 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 position is there, and it's now just a matter of time before I think we can put it all together to start showing how we can do it. Uh, so yeah, I think I think there are, but we gotta we gotta put the industry has to put some stuff together first to to be able to say we're actually going to be able to do it. It's one thing to say you should pay for it. It's another thing to, to actually have a real good plan and a, a business plan that actually makes some sense, that actually is realistic. You're working with uh, Connor Lewis a little bit, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's one of my advisors, if you will. Good. I, on his uh, his most recent podcast, I believe he was talking to Bowlings from Sharp Park. You know, yeah. trying to get that golf course, you know, get some work done and some historic preservation of some sort going. And Bowlings mentioned this idea that you're talking about now, and he used the word endowment. And is that basically like what you ideally you would try to set up is is have some sort of national endowment that that could a municipal course here, a public course there could could tap into? And, and what kind of numbers would you need to make that a viable uh, source of income? So, so yes, I, 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 I heard that that pod, and I thought it was great. And what, what Bo's been doing there is, is incredible, that whole group, um, to keep it, to get it to this point, and now to actually think about doing something has been incredible. And that's that just shows you that, that the fight is worth it. Uh, so yeah, the, yeah, he he referred to it almost like a university endowment. I I see it very similar, um, and I almost see it as 
a step-by-step process and you know the the first step is to just get an assessment of what needs to be done on some of these courses and and you know sadly just getting an assessment and a master plan in place at these courses is just is next to impossible so for very little money you'd be able to at least be able to have some conversation with the city about what needs to be done or what can be done then the the second step is is getting into a little bit more of a nitty-gritty of of actual dollars uh, but I have no doubt that that you know, in the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars, there's money out there that that under the right context will will come in. Uh, what I found is that that you just have to start asking. You know, one of the things that we haven't had a a mechanism in place. The National Links Trust up in D.C. is trying to do mm-hmm. it. I, you know, the one thing I maybe I fear is that we're all kind of trying to. It's like another grow the game initiative, right? We all have our own approach and I, I don't want that to happen i want all of us to come together to figure out what this might look like yeah it seems like so like a, a a concerted effort together would be better than having you know yep, not yep. you don't and want I, the, the donors to have to choose it whether they're going to give their money to to this company right. or this company yeah exactly exactly and so you know the, that's one thing i'm finding is is it's all about time now uh and i don't know if i have a whole lot of time uh not in the next couple of months but I had a, a consortium put together of about 15 to 20 people uh, that are movers and shakers in the industry that were going to meet up at, at, a, at, a, at a place in time, and it's still, it's still going to happen. It was supposed to happen at the end of this year. It's not going to happen. It's going to happen next year uh, to start having this conversation. And, and uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, the Tennis Association has it. If you followed the Victoria, I think it's Victoria Park, never mind, Victoria Golf Course in Los Angeles, uh, the tennis association just came in and tiger woods foundation as part of it and they've closed this golf course to make an entire new tennis uh, 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 facility um, paid for by you know f- dollars through their donations and so other industries have shown that this can be done the golf industry just hasn't been able to figure out how to put it together and uh, for anybody that's listening i you know i'd certainly would would welcome any any interested parties to help me i've got so the community links is what i've been promoting uh and i actually went and got a trademark i don't know what good that is and i got a trademark <laughs> at least uh, you'll get credit for it <laughs> <laughs> and so uh the community links is going to evolve to a community links foundation and it's it's sole purpose is to fund to begin to fund master plans of which they ultimately then can evolve into uh, larger scale projects. And so uh, it's in the process. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, I, I've been bullish about municipal golf primarily because, you know, some will close, but the majority of them will not. And they're going to be, something's going to have to be done. And what we've always, what I've always tried to promote with Community Links is that, you know, golf doesn't have to be the same product every single golf course you go to. It doesn't have to be 18 holes of championship length uh, with a member for the day feel, which is what the municipal uh, sec- sector got caught up in. You know, for a while they were making the same amount of money as everybody else. They were, it was successful, but now it's not. So what about going into these urban courses? What what about going to these? rural courses and actually, you know, doing something different with their land that, that isn't all about golf, but still has golf as the focus. And the community links, 
people ask me what community links is I, I say it's the future of golf in america because it's going to link the golf course to their community in a way that we haven't seen before and i think anytime i've had a conversation with people from council that actually have opened their minds and we do, and we talk about all the same things we we're talking about they say i've never heard golf described to me that way i might have interest in that and i think that's why i think i'm excited about i'm it. excited to, to i'm excited to hear that reaction i'm not excited about the fact that here we are in in 2019 and organizations like the usga uh, you know they're they're the caretakers of golf that I, i'm pretty sure they you know <laughs> they were worried about other things all these years instead of like on a grassroots level, who's playing the game. And that, that's not fair to say. I know they're concerned about it, but their solution has been to, you know, get a committee together and then, you know, come up with a program, you know, like play it forward or play nine. Like that's not a solution. That's, that's a, that's a sloganeering, you know, it's going to take, as you, as you're pointing out, it's going to take investment. It's going to take like money capital <laughs> to get, you know, these projects saved, to get these, these courses saved. That's what, that's what they need. We need, an in, infusion of, of money to, to like I've said this before, like the USGA or somebody else should sponsor uh, club rentals for free club rentals for kids to get them on the golf course, you know, just five club set that's available for any kid who's, uh, you know, a certain age who wants to try to play the game, but that takes a lot of money. I, I, I do another podcast called the good, good podcast. And uh, one of the hosts, Rod Morey, who, you know, you, you were on uh, the IC golf podcast with him. He talked about equipment companies and, you know, not only is the, has the USGA maybe not allocated an appropriate level of resources to, to spur growth or to introduce people to the, to the game or, or to support golf courses that need them. Equipment manufacturers, club manufacturers, ball manufacturers, they spend all their money on, on advertising and then they get upset when, the, you know, their, their profits fall because maybe people aren't playing enough golf. Why don't they come to the table and help introduce new people to the game? Why don't they donate their money, which they have a lot of it, into helping golf facilities stay on their feet? into creating junior programs, bringing new players into the game who are curious about golf. You know, they sit back and, and reap the rewards of all their sales and their $600 drivers. But as far as I can tell, they don't do a whole lot to spur growth. This was Rod's point. I, it it kind of just hit me all of a sudden, like, why aren't, aren't they at the table? Have you considered, you know, with this initiative, Community Links going to Callaway or Nike or, or Titleist or, you know, the, the big manufacturers who have a lot of money? Yeah, we we have we have, but uh, what you know? So you the the point that you asked just a minute ago about why hasn't the USGA done this or why hasn't you know other organizations done it? You know, I think it's it's one it had, obviously hadn't been a priority, but two they have you know all kinds of other initiatives going on. It's just gotten to be a machine of 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 programming, and I think that's why the timing for this concept is is ripe because I don't think that the USGA would be against funding these types of programs. You know, they ask for funding, you know, ask for certain programming uh, grant applications every year. And, and you know, the PGA of America is the same way. Uh, just nobody has been able to position themselves to actually focus on it. They haven't had the incentive to do it. And I think that's one of the, the end result of this is what what's the incentive? Because, you know, the, the, when, I, when I'm describing a lot of this, but the first reaction is, is like, oh, sure, Andy, you're trying to just drum up business. And it's, 
you know, I think, no. I mean, well, yes, I want I want business, but to me, this is about without the game of golf as a, as a healthy sport. And I'm not talking about growing the game. I'm just talking about right. taking care of what we have because there's plenty there to take care of that it only does everyone else some good. And we go all the way back to the roots of municipal golf. And you can talk about Tom Bendelow, uh uh, right in the same the same uh, breath of of when he opened uh, Van Cortland Golf uh, Course in in the Bronx, New York, you know, and then every every city around the country followed suit when they realized that there was a demand, and that's how we got to the amount of golfers that we got to. It wasn't because of the private club; it it, it was because of the municipal golf. And I think there there's the opportunity to continue to do that now. Uh, and then on top of that, we we are so much more educated on what good golf design is that you know we always talk about the dark ages of golf well dark ages what we learned from the dark ages is that you just just putting out a so-so product wasn't enough maybe it was enough to sell houses but it certainly wasn't enough to to get people to play golf or at least get people to play more golf and so now design and that's why i think this is a little different is that now we as a development uh, entity and, and and we as architects now have a, a stronger say as to why people like to play golf. They like to play golf on great sites, on great compelling designs that are done in a way that that uh, provides an experience that nothing else does. And you happen to be with your family and your friends. What what else? And hopefully you're carrying the bag over your shoulder. What else? What about that is is bad? It's everything that we as a society are looking for more of. And so that's why I think uh, we just got to get get our heads together and put this together. And I think we just start, need to ask these equipment op, you know, equipment manufacturers, the USGA, the PGA, and then go to every private club in the country to, to create a legacy uh, fund to help to help uh, promote municipal golf in their area. Well, and I I think when you're trying to have this conversation about golf and its merits and its virtues. Going forward, and this is something you've been on onto for a long time, you have to make, and maybe this is this is the nuts and bolts of it. Going forward into the future, you have to make an ecological argument for why golf is good and why it's not a waste, why it's not poisonous. I mean, you you analyze golf courses from a, a health perspective too. Um, you know, energy systems, water, electricity inputs, outputs, and as we take golf into the future. And again, I, I'm thinking about forest fires and, and uh, other other environmental issues that we face. The the, the way we've, we've presented golf isn't going to work going forward. It'll always work at high-end clubs, you know, who have the resources and can, can exist without financial worry behind walls. But when you're talking about city golf, municipal golf, you have to make an ecological case for it, and you have, and, and part of that is is no, this is good for the environment. This is not a drain. This is this is going to be healthy, and we're going to show you how that's how that's done. Are are we making any headway as far as selling golf as an as a asset to the environment? Well, yeah, I think so. I started having this conversation with superintendents around the the Southwest, starting in probably two thousand and three and four. And we talk about the golf industry being a, is this big, this big behemoth that's hard to move. Uh, in a matter of 15 years, uh, I went from a superintendent having no idea where his power bill was, no idea how much water he was using. Now, these are 
dramatic statements. I'm broad brushing here. <laughs> yeah, for uh, dramatic effect. But, <laughs> so to to now, I'd be hard-pressed to find a, 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 a superintendent of the United States that doesn't know where to find either one of those, isn't tracking his water use, and isn't having some some uh, best management practice guide in his pocket to be able to promote that. That, that, that happened in 15 years. That, that's been tremendous. So we've been making the the, the, the strides in the data. We have the data. Um, but my, my good friend Craig Kessler of the Southern Cal Golf Association, uh, we were at a, a golf industry show in California not too long ago, and he said it best. He said, the problem with our golf industry is all we do is we, we sit around and talk to each other. We just sit around and talk to each other about how good we are and why we're doing all the right things, but that that we're not talking outside of our industry. And so now, to me, this is where this starts to, to really make some headway, is to pull is to pull in these conversations with the people that are outside of golf. And, and what better way to do that than to get it through the cities? Um, so I, I'd say that... Uh, yeah, we're we're making headway, but you know I live in Arizona, so this is a this is a great case study for in the environmental impact about uh, on golf on the environment. We're a desert, and we're just entering the winter. Every golf course here, with the exception of a few, uh, are overseeding, uh, but a, a a pretty strong majority, and I I've got the numbers somewhere, uh, are all using reclaimed affluent water not potable water they're using it from you know a reclaimed source and it all translates to economics and one of the big things that's happening uh even i even saw an article recently in north carolina that a, a course is now going to be overseeding whereas for years he wasn't because it's an economic uh driver and i think one of the things that golf still provides is an economic uh aspect that you know, when it comes to uh, to government and it comes to uh, attracting business and uh, quality of life, economics plays into that sustainability equation. So we've got the environmental story. I believe golf has the ability to tell the economic story. And now with community golf-centric story, we now have the true triangle for sustainability. And that's why uh, we just need to start telling that story. It just seems to me that when you're projecting forward, the people that we're going to be talking to and having these conversations with people in a position of, of power are, are going to be raised in a generation where they're a lot more sensitive to the impact of things on on the environment, on nature. Uh, they're going to be, you know, to, to justify something, they're going to want to see uh, that it, that it's healthy and, and sustainable. So, so I'm assuming that that means you know uh, fewer chemicals, fewer pesticides, fewer fungicides, like all that kind of thing, is going to be really important. An important selling point. What does an environmentally stable, sustainable, smart golf course of the future look like, given those types of restrictions? Is it? Do we have to be ready to accept a different look on a golf course, a different style of a golf experience than we're used to? Yeah, I think that. I think that definitely is going to be a, a, a portion of it. However, even even you know uh, uh, many of the middle age, you know, the young exec uh, people that I'm uh, that I'm familiar with, you know, I'm 47 years old. I'm married, three young boys. You know, they all like green. They uh, they like the color. They, and then when they see, like my wife was watching Chambers Bay, the U.S. Open not too long ago. She's like, "What in the world happened to that place?" 
<laughs> and she's as as uh, aware of environmental sustainability as anybody. But yet, when they see things, there there's still a there's still a tendency to want something new and and fresh and green. Uh, so uh, to me, the future golf course is twofold. First, it's got we've got to continue to 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 find turf grasses that are less water resist or more drought resistant, less uh, you know needing of chemicals, more disease resistant. And really the, the holy grail here in, in, in the southwest and across the country is a grass that stays green, you know, 12 months a year. And I think there's, there's the ability to do that. However, cuts in funding to those types of, pro- of, 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 of programs to, to get there is, is becoming more and more difficult. And then I would say the, the second thing is, is energy de- independence, is to, is, to, is to be able to have a system that isn't so, uh, you know, so it doesn't demand so much power. The clubhouses, the big clubhouses of, of yesterday were, I think, are going to be gone. Uh, solar or some sort of, of renewable energy source has got to be part of it. Because water and power are going to be two of the the, the aspects that are going to drive uh, our country in the in the future, and and so to me, uh, those are the two things that I that I try to figure out how to you know learn more about. I've been learning; they've got more to more to learn. And I think if you've got those two set, and that happens to make money for the for a, a municipality or or a local area, uh, there's a, there's a fighting chance that golf becomes a benefit. You know the other as- the other side of this is is um, to selling golf and and making it more appealing to a, a larger base. I mean, if the community is going to pay taxes to support the golf course, even if they don't use it, it's important that they one, as we've just been talking about, realize that the golf course is not a drain on resources, and it's also convincing more people that the golf course is even if they don't play golf, it's it's for everybody. You mentioned it before. You can try to pull people into the golf experience even if they're not playing golf a clubhouse is one way to do that you've been hired to uh to come up with a plan for a clubhouse so uh, continue your thoughts on on what what a, a community links clubhouse could look like and how that could how that could be an asset to the community in ways that we're not really not at you uh golf clubhouse being an asset we're not really used to that right now yeah well so what you're referring to we got i was hired by the city of liberty lake washington Trailhead Golf Course. Uh, I partnered with a local clubhouse architect here in Phoenix. His name is Doug Fredrickson. Uh, he he'd done a bunch of work throughout this area, and most notably up in Greyhawk. Anybody's traveled to play golf in Phoenix and Scottsdale have heard heard of Greyhawk, and there's a, a place called Isabella's up there that uh, is very much this type of concept. And well, the city of Phoenix hired um, through a, a, a actually a foundation that actually hired him, uh, built a new clubhouse at Papago Park. And he basically took some of the same philosophies of a, of a master plan community like Greyhawk and put it at a municipal golf course. And, you know, so what I'm talking about isn't necessarily rocket science. It's just, you know, taking a, a clubhouse concept that we've basically been doing the same building for 30 years. You go to any clubhouse, it's all set up about the same. It was built in the last 30 years. Uh, and so now he's actually opened it entirely up, and, and his focus is on the outdoor space, the restaurant entertainment aspect, the, the experience of being uh, in the building, 
and the pro shop and everything golf centric is a little bit more like you might find walking into a you know a banana republic or some or a, a link soul type of concept and it's interesting uh, so the city of phoenix has has had their golf course for a lot of years and had a temporary clubhouse uh until they figured out what happened they just worked out an arrangement with arizona state university now the golf team plays there and they built this clubhouse that uh you know we've lived my family's lived here 15 years uh it is now the place on a friday night for all of us families to go meet there have dinner they have live music they have they have a putting green they have a driving range uh they have an outdoor fire pit pools uh outdoor uh fire pits and 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 seating uh there's a big open green that's cut to fairway height and interestingly enough back to the city of liberty lake i sent them this video i was there on a friday night and i videoed the the restaurant to the to the live music, to the outdoor seating, to the putting green, to the driving range, and all everything in between. You see golf carts uh, driving. You see kids throwing bean bags. You see moms sitting down on their on the couch uh, and family sitting down on the couch. And it was a very energetic social experience. And to me, that was unlike anything that I'd seen at a municipal golf course. And I call up Doug and I say, Doug, let's do this everywhere else. And so we went after this job in Liberty Lake, and they they hired us, and and we think that there's a, a an aspect to just getting people to the property. You know, that's one of the things I think trail systems around golf courses are so effective, and hopefully that trail system leads you to the golf clubhouse or the community house, whatever you want to call it, uh, to actually get people on the property that wouldn't necessarily be there. And so, uh, so yeah, we're. I'm designing it through Doug Fredrickson, but uh, we're also master planning the whole property uh, and and trying to just make some headway to to revitalize what is now a kind of a so-so golf experience. Our clubhouse is falling apart, built in the 70s, and now we have the opportunity to make it a, a true social center of the city of Liberty Lake, and I'm pretty excited about yeah, it. It sounds exciting. The user experience at, at Papago sounds amazing. I, I guess I would question, you know, is there a unique set of circumstances around Papago that, you know, there it would have to be in a certain situation or a certain setting where there are young families and people, you know, it has to be accessible. Um, I, I guess I wonder, like, is if it's replicable everywhere. You know, you'd have to really think hard about like who, what, what the clientele is, what's the demographic of the surrounding area, what what other options are available. Um, I'm sure I'm sure that all that's been put into, but I guess I'm I'm sort of torn between the idea of doing that and I see the appeal of it. I think Winter Park is another example of you know it's really just a, a patio with a really small little pro shop and some bathrooms, but it works perfectly for that uh, for that town. I'm torn between that that concept and what you're doing at Liberty Lake versus just doing away with clubhouses altogether, you know, and just going to like kiosks and um, automated things, you know, where you can get your green fees over your phone and go and scan your phone at the first tee or some guy's there with a with his phone, he scans it and uh, you have like a, a vending machine and food trucks or something like that, but just completely decentralizing the whole clubhouse experience. It's got to be a case by case situation, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I sh- should mention about Liberty Lake is we've got a, a an economics and feasibility study specialist with us, THK out of Denver, 
who is going to be doing three scenarios, a, 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 a up to $2 million investment, up to a $5 million investment, and up to a $10 million investment. And we're going to we're going to do our research to see what kind of opportunity is out there and whether or not building a Papago Park really is going to pay off or is it just something that they want to provide as an amenity. Because that's one of the things the cities do have the opportunity to do uh, is if, as long as, as, as more than just golfers use the facility, it becomes it becomes uh, you know, a loss leader in, in quality of life, just like a library or, a, or a, a aquatic center and those types of things that happen around the country. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's a, it's certainly a, a case by case basis, but I will say, uh, it comes down to the demand of golf and, you know, whether we like it or not, you go to these cities and they've got the rounds. They see that nobody or very few people are playing golf or a lot less people are playing golf than they were 10, uh, 12 years ago, and they see that as a as a as as a trend. And so, what they're asking is: Is that trend going to continue? Is it going to keep getting worse, or is there something that can can turn it? And I think that's where the architecture part of this comes in. And I think the kiosk and the simple golf. I think there's a need for that, uh, a demand for that when there's a golf demand and there's a product that people want to play. I love the Winter Park concept. That's that's perfect, and I think that's perfect for a lot of different folks around the around the country uh the city of phoenix is the fifth well, fifth or sixth largest metroplex in the country so uh and it happens to be located in the perfect spot uh where all the families live <laughs> so so it, it made it made a lot of sense there and 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 i think there'll be a lot more places where it will make sense it's it's such a it's such a tangled web you know about golf and and revival revitalizing it and you know, it's I can just it's just hard for me to wrap my head around too. I'm excited about community links and and making the case for golf, and I agree with everything we've talked about that golf has done a, a terribly poor job over the last twenty thirty years of of selling its merits. You know, of it just being a, a an exercise, an outdoor excursion, um, a, a mentally stimulating game. You know, the 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 game capital G is focused on like so many of, of the wrong things. And we're so far down the path now of the public turning its back on golf and viewing golf as, uh, as a situation of haves and, and have nots. And then cities, you know, when they look at their, their balance sheet and they just golf courses are losing 20, 50, a hundred thousand dollars a month. It's, it's just very daunting to, to figure out a way to, to get how to get that back. Uh, but it it sounds like in your conversations with people, th- there is at least a willingness to to hang on for a little while and and to see what their options are and, and to continue to give it a chance. Yeah, because I mean a lot of these a lot of these golf courses can't be anything else besides open space. So now now the question becomes, what kind of open space do we want it to be? I mean, you see this in Northern California. There's a couple of situations that are happening exactly the same conversations. Like, okay, well. Let's close the course, but then there opens up an entirely different conversation. Like, okay, well, let's hire a landscape architect and a big civil engineering group to come in here and make it a an open space park. And the next thing you know, there the the budget for a, a new park for all the accessibility issues and all the access issues and the fire becomes you know tens of millions of dollars of an investment. And then who's going to invest? Who's going to pay for that? Who's going to maintain it? And so now one of the big answers is. Well, they're going to set up these these funds, these endowments, if you will, to start to start taking care of these these parks, 
And I think there's a lot of the same translation that can happen for golf. We just got to get the mechanism in place to do mm-hmm. it. Well, let, let me see if I can, we can kind of sum up our, our conversation today. And I'm going to ask you a t- another one of those big questions. If you could, you know, if you could change one thing about golf or, or broadcast one single issue and, and just get one thought in, in everybody's minds, is it as simple as, not, I know it's not simple, but w- would that help? Is there one thing that, that you think would go the farthest if you could just beam an idea or a thought into the, the head of every American that would help golf? Yes, I, I, I believe if you think about all the people that love to play golf, the reasons that we love to play golf, it's a, the most unique game in the entire world, and we play it for a reason. So I would love to beam all of the feelings for all the people that are passionate about the game and why we play it, for the reasons we play it, somehow channel that to everybody across the country. They'd understand it's a healthy activity that's competition, that uh, has ethics, and it, no one's watching except for you. Uh, all the things we love about golf, you're out in nature. It's people create these spaces. They create the spaces to pr- provide experiences. Uh, you, to me, that's what I would be. I would, I, would, I would try to summarize why it is that we love golf and know that that game of golf will always be there for you as long as you can walk and you can, you're active well into your 80s, be able to play golf. So that's, that's the feeling in community golf and community links and the ideas, those are the things that I try to reflect because those are the things that make that, that those are the things that make cities vibrant and successful. It's just, uh, it's just always a matter of, of getting people getting a club in their hands. It's not for everybody, but if, if, if there's a way to get somebody on a golf course with a club in their hands and hopefully it's, it's a, it's a city course or it's, or it's not a golf course that's strung out through a residential development. If you can get the, give them that experience with the club in their hands and just get them to that moment when they hit their first solid shot or get the ball airborne or make their first bogey or whatever it is, that's the whole game right there. I mean, it doesn't get any better yeah, than that. And, and we've golf lost its ability to, to have create that experience or to enable that experience. It, it's just, it's, it's really such a, a magical thing. And you just have to get somebody to a golf course with a club in their hands and a pencil and card in their pocket. Well, and let me, let me go out a little bit further. Cause I, you know, so this is a, a, a bit uh, kind of front and center for me. I have three young boys, 11, nine and five. And it's right in the, the, the pathway of this idea that, Oh, kids just don't like golf. And so I have a lot of other friends that have boys and girls. And we have a lot of this conversation of does your does your son or daughter play golf? Well, no, he doesn't. He he likes he likes to do other things. And I think, you know, I I have stopped short of actually forcing them to play golf. <laughs> but I feel like I have a responsibility to at least have them comfortable enough to have a club in their hand and be able to know that that it's important to me that they that we play golf. I can't wait to take all four of them to play the the old course at St Andrews and make a trip across Scotland. And I I, I wonder, you know, we, we talk about no kids playing golf, but a lot of us golfers don't, you know, we we've we've succumbed to that. And I say, you know, to me that's where the programming, you know, junior PGA has been a huge help for my kids playing playing golf. Once they started to play competition, that's one of the things that we don't talk a lot about is the con part of it is that you don't have to be the great athlete to play golf you can be good at golf if you're not a great athlete it helps but 
so I would just say, you know, to me, I think the, the, the first thing we can all do is, as golfers, do our best to get our kids to play golf. I, t- I have taken – I made the mistake. I have, a, I have an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old, a boy and a girl, and I, I made the mistake of taking them to the driving range maybe one – too many times because the attention span at that age just hitting ball after ball it it's not fun you know most adults don't even like go to the driving range but i finally i finally got them out of right. a little nine hole golf course and they were you know they could they could move the ball forward and i saw i started to see them kind of get wrapped up in it because they wanted to, to beat the other one i mean they're very competitive and you know if one got an 11 and the other one got a 10, you know, that 10 was pretty happy. And I thought, this is golf. This is it. This is match play. It's happening right in front of my eyes. And I I like, I don't know if I say, if I said to them, well, let's go play golf today. I don't know that how enthusiastic they'd be, but if I could just get them out there, they would get into it. At least for nine holes, they would get into it. They would. They would. Well, I I have my own story about that because I took my kids to the driving range because I was under the, uh, the assumption, hey, just get a club in their hand. And they'd sit and hit golf balls, and they'd be, you know, slashing them everywhere, hardly make contact. And we kind of got them into some lessons, and the first tee's got some good things around here. And then, you know, we'd go back to the driving range. And it wasn't, like, it was actually my wife that said, hey, there's a junior PGA program. We should get them into that. We have a friend that's in it. And as soon as they got into an environment with other kids with a competition that they were keeping score on their own and they were deciding who won or lost the hole because it's match play that they came back and they're like dad what have you been doing get us to these tournaments we don't want to go to the driving range anymore and i and of course i knocked my head saying well of course why i don't like to sit and beat balls why would little kids want to do that so I, 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 would, I would encourage anybody that's got little kids, try, to, try the junior PGA. I'm a big fan. Get them out, get them out playing actual golf and try to get them in, a, in, a, in an organized place. Because, you know, kids these days, very rarely are they off on their own making their own decisions. Uh, but in golf, they do that. And, I, they, and they, they love yeah. it. And they, they, no matter what age, they, they go through the whole range of golf emotions that somebody who's been playing for 30 years does. There's elation, there's yeah. dejection, there's frustration, there's excitement. They, they want to, you know, make a score. They want to beat the, uh, beat their brother. It's just, it, it yeah. does, it's, they're never too young to, to experience the things that make golf such a great sport. And yet another reason to play match play because they can have a 15 on one yep. hole and know that they just lost one and they actually have a chance of winning the next one. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Well, let's end on a couple, a couple quick fires. Um, yeah. 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 Would you rather have a great natural site to build on a, a new golf course and, and a low budget or have a, a big budget and kind of a neutral site where you could create, you had to create, you had to do the Pete Dye thing or the Mike Strands things on a piece of property. If your next new build project was one or the other, which would you rather it be? Yeah, that's an easy question for me. The the, the perfect site with a small budget is what I would go for because I think that's just, to be honest with you, all sites that people are building on, I believe that their budgets aren't very big. That you know, when you compare mm-hmm. it uh, to across. Uh, you know all the projects, so I would take I would take a great site uh, before before anything, and preferably if it had sand, I'd, I'd 
it would be even hard. It would be an even yeah. easier discussion. Well, that I mean, that's the that's the holy grail right there. You know, sand, good yep. sta- good sand, good movement. I, I understand that part of me though is it would sort of want to take a shot at the <laughs> at the completely you know manufactured golf course where it was uh, you know a hundred percent your intellect that was coming out in the product. But you made your answer. Yeah, so. there's a certain. <laughs> Yeah, 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 there's a certain aspect to that that I, I get what you're saying. It's and maybe my my uh, response is based on my own experiences because I I tend to get more of the latter than the forward. <laughs> so, um, but but I still think you know golf when you try to reflect golf on others and try to get people to play more golf, the the more heavy-handed that you become and more human influence, the the less likely you are to replicate something that we love about golf and that's the natural aspects of it we spoke about your career trajectory it's definitely on the on the upward movement who is the most underrated or underappreciated architect in the business right now who's the most underrated um who's the next Andy know? staples <laughs> well no, no, well that's a different question i mean I, I still got only. a long way uh, I got no, no. Um, you know the guy. The guy that I think is just a matter of time that you're going to start hearing more about in the United States is is Mike Cocking over at the Ogilvy Clayton mm-hmm. Cocking and Meat guys yeah. in Australia. He's got a job in Texas. I'm really looking forward to seeing what what he does. I think he's a really talented guy. At Shady the, Oaks. Yeah, Shady mm-hmm. Oaks. Yep. He the the Peninsula Kingwood job. I happened to make my first trek over to Australia last year, and that that uh the project they did at peninsula kingwood is is pretty spectacular and of course it's it's handcrafted with a lot of local guys and stuff so i'd I'd be interested to know how how to replicate that other places but that was really good uh and then the only other guy that that i feel like there's a little um maybe the two of us are kind of on the same you know kind of same trajectory he's out ahead of me i think but andrew green is another guy that i think you're going to keep hearing more about he's a real super talented just a really nice guy I like him a lot. All right. Both you guys, yeah, you, there's a little bit of parallels to you. And I'm just so excited to see, you know, uh, um, I, I, let me back up. I'm, I'm not urging a turnover, but, you know, the, the work that, that all the, you know, the names are doing right now are, is fantastic. It's it's legendary. But I really hope we get to a point when, when there's a, a wider pool of, of influence in modern architecture. I know yeah, you are, too. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so there's a bunch of guys out there that it's funny because it, you talk about my the next Andy Staples or the trajectory. I, and I, you know, I know guys like uh, a guy named Drew Rogers, sure. uh, Chris Wolzinski, mm-hmm. Kevin Atkinson out of Denver. I mean, these guys are all kind of you know my my ilk, if you will, same age. You know, we're all busting our hinders to to do what we do because we love what we do, and why one one gets more pub than other i i have no idea yet that's that's one of the one of golf architecture media you know what the 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 great questions is who gets famous and who doesn't but there's a lot of us out there doing really good work and i think that's where for the first time in my career is there we are at a highest of level of understanding of you you have to do good work because you're only as good as your last job and i think we all understand that more than ever Mm. all right Best modern golf course that you did not have a part in building. <laughs> well, I guess I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't mention Peninsula Kingwood anymore. Um, 
I, you know, the the one that probably comes right to mind is the anything by Mike Strands, and I'd probably say the Monterey Peninsula Country Club when I the, the short course when I first saw that it was a dead still warm day, uh, but just graphically seeing seeing the shapes and standing in the fairway it made it feel like it was 50 degrees and blustery windy and i i remember just feeling like there's an artistry to what he was doing that 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 i would aspire to one day so i'd i'd, I'd say anything by mike strands uh and monterey peninsula comes to mind do you think mike strands was he just a once in a 50 year visionary or does the fact that he doesn't really have a, a, a real parallel in the design world right now have more to do with the fact that we're just not building as many new golf courses and there just aren't, aren't opportunities for somebody to express something on that level. I think that's probably right. The last part of that, I, you know, I think he had a really good group of guys and I think that's, that's one of the things I know he would say is that he was only as good as the guys that were out there building and, you know, I got to know Forrest Fesler through my Sand Hollow project in Utah. Mm-hmm. He was our builder out there. And so, you know, just to have another, you know, set of eyes on the the creative aspects and then have the guys that are that are comfortable doing the work that you do and going all around the country doing it. Um, you know, I think he's one of a, you know, one of a, of only a few guys. Uh, and, you know, I think we always... It's one of the slippery slopes I mentioned earlier about golf architectures. We all, we all think about, oh, if we just had our shot and, you know, we, we try to, to humanize Mike Strands and saying, okay, well, I could, could I have done that? And I, and I say that there's only a few times, well, more than a few times at Mike Strands courses would I have ever gone on and said, there is no way I would have ever thought of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I like to believe that there's probably only one Mike, Mike Strands. It would be hard to replicate that. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it is interesting how these conversations always come back to Pete Dye and Mike Strands in, in some form or another. And yeah. I, I wonder, it's I, I, I we'll wrap it up here, but I wonder if that says something. And that's, this ties back into having an architectural voice, and, and not to take anything away from Tom Doak or, or or Bill Coor, but we talk about their projects and and their how the golf courses sit so beautifully on those incredible landscapes and i mean they're you know top 50 top 20 golf courses in the world but it's almost like the conversations that i have there's just a certain amount of like appreciation for more appreciation for the visionary talents of of strands or or die uh than there are for these maybe the they're victimized not that's not the right word but Maybe they're not given as much credit because their sites are so good. I'm talking about Core and Doak and, and some of Gill stuff now, but uh, the, the the reverence that we have for for Strands and Die are it seems different to me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think one of the and this is probably a topic for another time, but you know one of the things that that I think should be talked more more about with you know we always come back to Sand Hills as being this the kind of a pivot in our industry. And building golf on sand, you know, the one thing that those guys seem to have done, I don't know if it's on purpose, uh, but kept quiet the values of everything that went into the construction of those golf courses. And in the one thing, and then I'm thinking about Bally Neal as well, you know, we built Sand Hollow in in a uh, all red sand dunes. 
And one of the reasons why we were able to build it the way we did is because we now had the knowledge that at Sandhills and Ballyneal, that if you that if you had the right sand at the right depth, you didn't have to build USGA greens. You didn't have to do all the drainage that, that other courses were doing. And I think to me, the voice that really should be told more about Sandhills is the, the fact that it opened up a whole other realm of understanding of how to grow grass and that we were able to do things that were, weren't necessarily rubber stamped USGA greens, drainage, 2%, 3% drainage everywhere. And that's really, to me, the value of Sandhills was the pivot on how we built golf courses, not necessarily the design. Now, the design is spectacular. It's one of my favorites in the world. But it gave us the confidence to do things that that we weren't able to do before. Yeah, I guess we, there's not enough credit given to the the creative construction aspect of it. You know that all the the difficult choices that they they made, they had to figure that that out because it, you, like you just said, there wasn't there wasn't a, a plan for that before Sandhills. They were literally yeah. doing that for the first time. It had been done in at least in modern history. Well, it, it, it probably was done on, uh, before, but it wasn't done on the level that that everyone now assume or, or now recognize the course as being one of the greatest of all time and i think that to me was a story that that just was oh it's like well it's it's sand so we can't do that well no yes you can now um there are certain things that we now have learned uh and that that's a that's a voice that that needs to be a lot stronger and i, I appreciated the you getting dave wilbur on because he was one of those guys that had along with that and i think that's that's a story that i think um, is really a, a, a very under mm-hmm. under talked about uh, topic of our of our business. Okay, you've just given me a mission. <laughs> Give more of that, <laughs> Andy. Great talking to you. I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a long, long time, and, and I, I feel like the timing was right now. And uh, I just really appreciate you. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I, I appreciate the fact that you're doing what you're doing, and and enjoy the shows so I, I appreciate you having me on hopefully uh hopefully i live up to the standards that the other guests have <laughs> established i don't think there's a question about that you're a pro well thank you thanks andy okay nice job andy that was well done thank you very much you know one of the things that he said in our conversation that i thought was really interesting was touching on a big topic in golf course architecture at least it's a big topic to me and that is what effect does the discussion about architecture that ha- occurs in social media and in uh, di- on discussion boards on the internet, what effect does that have on the larger world of golf course design? Does it have any effect? There's a discussion happening in politics right now whether what happens on Twitter is really representative of the public and what the public as a whole feels. It's easy to get wrapped up in that if you're on Twitter and think that, that the opinions and expressions that are happening in that forum is the real world, uh, which is easy to do because of, of the, the heat and the passion that people bring to their arguments and their responses are direct and instantaneous. So it's, it's tempting to get caught up in, into the idea that that, that world speaks uh, for some larger section of the population, and, and that's the narrative that's happening uh, everywhere. And I'm not sure that's the case, and I don't think it's the case in politics. I don't think it's the case in in architecture, or at least I didn't think it was the case in architecture. But uh, there may be something something to that. Architecture is a, a design is a very small world. It's it's fairly insulated. It, it's it's layers upon layers upon layers. But when you get to the biggest outer layer, it's not that far from the inner layer, uh, really. So I've recently been under the assumption that 
that these discussions are a bubble, but or do some of these thoughts and opinions permeate that membrane and and make it out into the real world and have uh, effects and even potentially sway opinion in some small way? And what Andy said was was yes. And in fact, some of this does leak out. Some people do pay attention, maybe more than some uh, owners. Uh, club members, greens committees, uh, on some level, they are becoming increasingly aware of, of these themes and these discussions and these topics that are kind of floating around. But that is happening on, on some level, apparently. And it will be very interesting to see how large of, a, of an impact that makes because social media is so prevalent, you know, with uh, on Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram and, and the prevalence of, of photography. Everybody's a great photographer now. It'll be very interesting to see the impact that that has on golf design going forward. I was also encouraged by Andy's discussion of his interactions with uh, council members, superintendents, uh, people in positions of, of municipal authority who all seemed at least according to, to him and, and, and his reporting, do seem to care about salvaging public golf. Uh, if they've got courses in their town that are struggling, it would be very easy for them to look for ways to get out from under that debt burden. But there seems to be a, a great will to, to find a way to make these courses and these public facilities make it. Uh, they, they Obviously, they have great financial incentive to do so, but uh, sometimes when you're hemorrhaging that much money and, and just operating in a loss for so long, it's, it would be very tempting to to want to pull the plug, especially when golf's popularity is not uh, is not strong compared to what it was, you know, in, in the heyday of, of public golf in the 50s and 60s, especially, and uh, you know, even into the later decades. Uh, so that's encouraging to know uh, that there is still a will from public administrators to, to find ways to keep these facilities in good standing and, and operational. And I think the message that Andy, that Andy shared, and I think this is the best way to approach it, is to encourage uh, the viewpoint that the, the city governments do have a large percentage, in most cases, of, of their, their citizens and their taxpayers who do play golf, who do want a public place to play, who do enjoy the sport. And it's the city's obligation or the county's obligation to do everything they can to present a viable option for them. It, it, it is a public service. And the more we can guide the conversation during down that avenue, that golf is a public service that just like, just like libraries or museums or, or parks, or as Andy said, swimming facilities, golf falls into that category of being a desirable lifestyle amenity to the people who live in these towns and, and counties. So um, he's onto something there. And, and my God, how impressive is it that he's got an entire wall in his office with the names of <laughs> parks and recreation directors and city government members across the country who are in charge of overseeing these public facilities. What a great service Andy Staples is providing to public golf and community links. And I know I look forward to the time when I can do more to help that great cause and help contribute to some sort of endowment or legacy foundation that will help struggling public facilities continue to survive and serve their their districts. But that will wrap up this episode. Thanks to Andy Staples for joining me. That was a long time in the making, but uh, I'm glad we got to do it. I thought that was a good conversation. Please go to TalkingGolf.com and subscribe to as many of those podcasts hosted on that website as you can. There's Talking Golf History with Connor Lewis, who we mentioned in this program. Uh, There's the Good Good Podcast featuring me, Rod Morey, and Adrian Logue, State of the Game. Mike Clayton, Jeff Shackelford, Rod Morey, uh, and, and, and several other good podcasts and more podcasts on that network coming. So uh, go there, 
give those a spin subscribe subscribe to feed the ball follow me on instagram and twitter at feed the ball thank you all for tuning in we'll have another episode coming your way shortly thanks to the sundogs and until we get a chance to do this again adios